Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, a producer at Intelligence Squared, and welcome to this week's episode. Today we have James Montague for you. He is the author of a new book entitled 1312, Among the Ultras, a journey with the world's most extreme fans. And he had a really interesting conversation with Roz Irwin, senior reporter at the Sunday Times, who many of you will have heard on the podcast before. And they have a deep dive into what is one of the most controversial but also popular subcultures in sports and politics. So we hope you enjoy it. And if you do, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find out about us and also lets us know what you think. Hello, I'm Ros Irwin, a journalist for the Sunday Times, and welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here with James Montague, a journalist and the author of 1312, Among the Ultras, A Journey with the World's Most Extreme Fans, and welcome today. Thanks for having me. Right at the beginning of the book, you say that the these kind of supporters are the most under, misunderstood part of the game. What is it that means they're so misunderstood? Well, the first part is secrecy. I mean, when you watch any game of football in Europe or around the world, you'll see banners, flares, um, you know, almost what's happening in the stands is as interesting as what's happening on the pitch. Yet people don't actually know anything about what's going on, the dynamics there, the politics of what's going on, who these people are, because the subculture of ultras has been, jealously guards its anonymity um, and is an extremely anti-establishment, anti-authority kind of concept. So... Uh, it is almost impossible to get access to the scene as a journalist, as a writer. Um, you know, they they hate the police, anybody in a position of authority, and they view the media almost as as badly as they view the police. And 1312 is, is a number that I've seen everywhere at almost every football stadium around the world. Casablanca, Jakarta, Tel Aviv, uh, Cairo, especially Cairo. Um, almost everywhere you see 1312, and it's a number code, means... A cab, all cups of bastards, and it's this is a kind of become a kind of credo that everybody agrees with in the ultra scene. And journalists are kind of the, are almost the flip side of the same coin. We are seen as part of the establishment. One of the reasons why they have such a bad reputation is because we paint them as as kind of unthinking thugs. So that has a kind of effect that you, if you can't get access, you don't write about them. So there is a kind of almost cartoon caricature of who they are. And there wasn't really any decent books other than kind of the type of kind of football hooligan literature that you could have got in England in the 1980s and 90s, glorifying, you know, kind of the worst parts of it. But I was interested in what 
who these people are and actually how many of them have affected political political change and have been harbingers of what's happened in Eastern Europe, in the Balkans. Um, and these are incredible stories. And I thought just no one has ever been able to really proper, properly get access. And it's taken me about 15 years of writing about football culture around the world to build up enough goodwill, as it were, that I could have people vouch for me so that I could enter this world not undercover and try and tell somebody stories that shows it good and bad. So your investigation takes you all over the world. I mean, it's an incredibly international book. So I'm asking you to generalise globally. <laughs> but for the uninitiated, who are these people? Because you say in the book, they're not the same as hooligans. Now, it may be a subset, yeah. but they're not all the sort of football thugs that, as you say, journalists have, have written quite a yeah. bit about. I mean, when we think of, especially in England, I mean, it's obviously an international podcast, but let's think English hooligans. It was a, it was basically unreconstructed violence. That was all it was. It was it was okay. There were teams, there were firms, and they would fight each other. But it was kind of like sprawling urban warfare, and that was all it was. It was an extremely nihilistic scene. I know that people at like the National Front and the far right would tap into the hooliganism movement to try to find some like minded people. But generally, it was it was pretty apolitical. It was about violence. Ultras are a completely different uh, kettle of fish. Completely. They come, they emerge basically out of uh, late 1960s Italy. And this is a time, 1968, where Italy was in political ferment. You had a few years later, you had the years of lead, where when you start looking into what happens in Italy in the 70s and 80s, I mean, it's guerrilla warfare, far left, far right terrorists, assassinations, bombings. Um, I mean, 80 people were killed, I think, in the Bologna train station bombings in the early 1980s by one kind of far right group. And that kind of political maelstrom kind of moves into the football stadiums and so these groups start to develop and there's this kind of phrase in Italy called campanilismo which is kind of means bell towers and it's a really interesting phrase because what it shows is that each city because Italy was a relatively recently unified country that actually what matters is your bell tower your city square so you have these ultra groups that develop in each of these city squares and so the divisions between them are almost like different countries going to war. So this this culture develops out of Italy that looks very different. It brings the pageantry of political protest into the into the terraces, into the curva. So you have mosaic choreographies, these big, huge banners where they send messages to their rivals or to the management or to the politicians. They have pyro. Um, football comes to Italy through Genoa you know, from the British, but you have maritime flares start to be used at matches. And so you have this this choreographed, climactic show of power at every football match with flares and smoke bombs and messages. And it becomes something that isn't just about supporting a team. It becomes a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week obsession. Ultra means to go beyond in Latin. And that's what this football kind of fandom is. It is to go beyond. And that develops over into the 1980s and 90s into something much more dangerous, much more political. Um, football terraces are a very good mirror on society. So when they first develop in the 70s, much of Italy is very left-wing. So a lot of the groups are very left-wing. I mean, they're even named after left-wing core celebs like Fedain, for instance, a Palestinian guerrilla movement. So you have that. And then as the far right grows in Italy, so do the far right groups on the terraces as well. But then through a kind of process of kind of globalization and not as quickly as we're used to in the kind of 21st century but essentially cross-pollination from world cups being shown in different countries and people traveling to them and taking what they learn from each other 
that way or by teams traveling somewhere to on an exhibition game and they bring back some experiences they had in Brazil. This all gets kind of spread all around the world. So like the globalization of it. Yeah, so you've got the Balkans, for instance. I mean, you start getting... Yugoslavia is a great case in point. Yugoslavia wasn't like the rest of communist Eastern Europe. It, it had relative freedom. People could travel outside their borders and work. You had magazines like Ciao Tifo, which is an Italian magazine that was widely read in all, all the Yugoslav republics. You could go to football matches uh, in Trieste. You could go and buy punk records there. So all of that outside influence goes into the Yugoslavia and they, they end up building their groups, which then, I mean, that obviously has a fairly negative outcome in the end because those groups have their role to play in the war that comes. But it spreads all around the world, North Europe, Eastern Europe. Um, the fall of communism gives a space for people to express themselves in this way. So it becomes a kind of almost a global kind of concept that's mixing bits of Argentina with, they have groups called Barras Bravas, interestingly come from Italy originally. I mean, parts of it come from Italy because if you go to the Boca neighbourhood, of Boca Juniors, seventy percent of the people there have their roots from Genoa. The the nickname of Boca Junior comes from the name in Argentine Spanish of of Genoese. So you've got this, you know, at the turn of the twentieth century, things are travelling by boat. By the seventies and eighties, it's by television. People are then in the nineteen nineties. They've got cable television. They're seeing Syria, ah, Italian football. Then they're copying it in Sweden. Then you've got the internet. Then suddenly you've got uh, in Indonesia, you've got ultra groups with Italian names like Burigata Kervasud that come from, you know, Bandung in, in the middle of Java. So it's it's a it's a story of of, yes, an outsider kind of culture. There's also a story about globalization, how they spread around the world. And so to understand ultras, you, it's not just about going to Italy. It's about going everywhere where you can find them. Um so it's obviously a global phenomenon, but I think what outsiders struggle to understand, people who don't follow football, or perhaps even some people who do follow football, is what does it actually have to do with the sport? Well, <laughs> that's a great question. I mean, in, it starts off, of course, by you are you are doing everything in your power to give a uh, benefit, to give an advantage to your team. And that's how like, one Roma... Ultra explained it to me like I have Roma to my back, Rome to my front. You know, you a lot of the capos aren't even watching the games. It's about creating an atmosphere that somehow encourages your team to do better. So there is a at its core, there is a there is a footballing reason. But it's like everything. I mean, if you look at kind of punk as a subculture or graffiti as a subculture, of course, you have the actual act of playing a band you have the actual act of making that graffiti. But outside it, of course, it becomes something much more. It becomes a community of shared values and of shared experiences. And that that becomes an incredibly powerful thing. So it has developed over the years into something that is almost impenetrable to outsiders and also kind of easily, not easily manipulated, but if you can control that or, or harness that in some way, it's an incredibly powerful political constituency. And we see that in Ukraine where the ultras play like, really important role in the Maidan revolution in 2014. In Egypt, same thing happened in uh, 2014, uh, 2011, when uh, the ultras of Cairo play a really important role in Tahrir Square, Taksim Square in, in Istanbul, which wasn't so successful, but still that you could see the role that they played. Even North Africa today, if you go to Morocco and Algeria and Tunisia, 
you know, the authorities are absolutely terrified of the ultras. They've now, they, their terrace, the songs that emerge from the terraces of Raja Casablanca, for instance, are then used in protests on the street. They make these beautiful, haunting songs about corruption, uh, disenchantment, drug abuse, and they then become the soundtrack of protest. And the same thing happened in Algeria when Bouteflika was removed. There is one song in particular that the the uh, ultras of one of the teams, it became the soundtrack of his ousting, basically. So it's, it, it is about football, but then... Like any subculture, of course, once you have enough people in there involved in it, it becomes something, it becomes a different beast altogether. And, and I think because it's football, and I think a lot of people could have looked down their noses at football a little bit. Not you guys, obviously, because you've got me on talking about it, but um, they look down their nose at football. And as it's some, as an, I remember, I think it was Paul Foote, who's a really great uh, Italian historian, and he wrote a book about Italian football called Calcio. And he was saying that there was, he was looking through a book on Italian history, obviously, that's one of the biggest books that can ever be written about. There wasn't a single mention of football. And so how can you write a book about Italian history without writing about a book about football? And I think this is a really under-studied uh, area if you want to understand a little bit about the world. So what was it that drew you to it? So it's been understudied, so it's a good subject to write a book about, mm. clearly. But you've really embedded yourself in this world in, a, in quite a profound way, and, and, and you've travelled so much for it. To put that much effort into something, why was it the subject was something that you were so drawn to? It's There's a, there's a couple of things. I mean, I, I was never an ultra because we don't really have ultras in Britain because the entire culture changes after... Hillsborough, uh, the Taylor Report, Britain, British football, English football in particular, was in an absolute mess and needed to be reformed. But it, we now have this shiny new era of the Premier League. And so, you know, uh, fan culture where fans are at the centre of, of this concept, it doesn't really exist anymore. It might still do in Germany and places like that. But when I was travelling abroad to games, I was I was standing with the ultras. You know, because when I started out, I didn't have a press pass. I didn't necessarily have a magazine I was writing for. I was a freelancer, just bouncing from place to base, place. And I'd find myself in the cheapest part of the stadium, which is where the ultras stood. And when I was a young boy, I mean, when I was 13, I would go watch West Ham. And I would go and stand in the North Bank uh, in the last few seasons where the kind of ICF, these hooligan firms. I mean, I wasn't the hooligan or anything like that. But just being close, the proximity to that danger was something that never left me. So I was always attracted to that part of the stadium. And when I spoke to every ultra, their origin story is remarkably similar. They'll go to the stadium with their mum and dad and they'll stand there, usually in the West or East End, and they'll see behind the goals this incredible, exciting display of crash bang wallop. And they'll want to be there and they'll end up going there. And then it's it's kind of like to get in there, you've got kind of, you start at the periphery and they, you know, somebody will notice you coming a couple of times and then you get a bit closer in. And that's one of the reasons why this subculture can be very difficult to, you know, because you, ha you have to put a lot of work to get into it. And it's that's why it's almost kind of impenetrable. So on the one hand, I've always been drawn to it. I've always been interested in the political stories of it. And I kept on coming across how, you know, <laughs> real politique and these ultras kind of, kind of both came together and and I felt that there was another I mean when I started one of my great heroes I know it's a bit of a cliche was was George actually it was the Manic Street Preachers but <laughs> um uh I remember listening to I was, a, I was a massive Manic Street Preachers fan and so you know nail varnish feather bowers eyeliner a lot which went down you can imagine that went down really well in Chelmsford Essex <laughs> on a on a Friday night and uh but they did a song if you tolerate this your children will be next which was you know there's a line in there if I can shoot rabbits I can shoot fascists and it's from, uh, it's a song about the Spanish Civil War. So 
I ended up breeding because of that, I ended up breeding homage to Catalonia. And that was like, if I do this, that's how you do it. I mean, I'm not going to get shot in the neck, I hope, but if you're going to do something, you've got to be there and you've got to see the whites of their eyes and you've got to experience and you've got to smell everything that, that, that happens. And um, I mean, I never got the chance to be a war correspondent. So I guess this is the next best thing. And so if I was going to do a book like this, there was only one way you can do it. And that is, you just have to be standing there and you've got to feel it and you've got to feel all the fear and feel the elation as well. And that was kind of, kind of how I've, I mean, I'm 40 now, so I don't know if I can do another book like this, but that's certainly how I, tr- I approach this one. You mentioned being a war correspondent. Does this at times feel, admittedly, not quite as terrifying as that? But there must have been moments that felt frightening writing about this. Yeah, there were a couple of, you know, it's not war. I mean, there was. there have been times in my other books where, I mean, I spent a lot of time in Egypt during the revolution and, you know, I was... I was I was in Port Said and it was just before Morsi was removed from power and there was a massive riot. And the night before, 15 people had been shot dead outside the prison because they tried to storm it to release some of their relatives. And every day there'd be protests. People, then they would have a big uh, procession from the mosque with the body and then there'd be another protest and another person would be shot dead. And there's, there was a point where it was connected to football in a kind of really tangential way. But I was like, it's probably, I hadn't been to a football match in like three or four weeks and I'm literally going street to street being shot at. And I was like, this isn't really football journalism anymore. I probably should go home. So compared to that, this wasn't so bad. But at the same time, there's something about when you are in a conflict situation where you there, there are some kind of rules, whereas this, there are rules, but you're completely on the outside of it and things can change so quickly. So in a way, I f- it felt more dangerous at times. Like there's a moment where, there's a subculture within ultraculture of arranged fights, which there are thousands of groups around Europe every weekend who cross borders will meet to fight in extremely violent fashion. 10, 20, 30, 40, 100 against 100. There are rules. There's an honor system. Um, it's very difficult to go and see them. They won't. You won't find any videos of this online. It's highly illegal. Everybody trains as if they're an MMA, MMA fighter. I mean, they're all like pumped up, um, you know, really, really brutal stuff. And you go to something like that. And I managed to go to go to one in Sweden and it changes because I thought, well, this is kind of a controlled violence and I have to see this. But then it turns into like the other team doesn't turn up. And suddenly this one group of this firm are now rioting through North Stockholm and I'm kind of with them. And suddenly it's like, well, all, all, all bets are off. Like anything can happen in this. Imagine if I got arrested. What do I say to them? Do I pull out my press card? No, can't do that. I'm part of it. There was a moment when I actually had to run away from with them from this group of guys that they were attacking. And there was some guy unconscious on the floor. And I'll never forget the look that he gave me because I was there as an observer. But to him, I wasn't an observer. To him, I was one of them. And it was just pure hate. So... Yeah, there were moments of absolute fear and terror. Um, Who has the scariest um, ultra fans? Where are they in the world? I mean, I didn't write about them in the book, but Hungarian fans scare the living daylights out of me. For some reason, just they're just just massive. They're all just so big. I don't know, like they're, they're, like they're pumping air into their arms. Um, and Ukraine was quite interesting because it it's so connected with the far right, and it's not often you interview someone that's got. A, swastika on their head so it yeah that was that was quite scary the thing that really scared me the most i think is when it's connected to organized crime and 
that's something that's particularly prevalent today in Italy. And you can understand how it's got down that gone down that route for some groups because, you know, all cops are bastards, one, three, one, two, against all authority. There is nothing more, you know, it's only a short step to be in the crime world. I mean, ACAB comes as a, as a kind of prison tattoo anyway. It comes because of criminals who, you know, feel outside of the law. So... In Italy, especially when I met Diabolic, who was the head of the Irreducible, the, the fascist group. I mean, outwardly fascist. I mean, a lot of groups try to hide their fascism. But I mean, this guy was absolutely, you know, he was he was a fascist. He called himself a fascist. He, when he got out of the car, everybody gave a Roman salute. And when I interviewed him, it was next to a portrait of Mussolini. I mean, you know, there's no getting away from it. He, you know, was a proud fascist. But he was also very much involved in organized crime i mean he just come out of prison for drug trafficking and then he's shot dead through he's literally executed shot in the head in a with by a professional killer in a park three months later so when you've got a little window into that world you know he was he was friendly he was charismatic we had a two-hour interesting interview uh but the, the the window the little tear that i saw of that you know the world that he was he was just shielding me from a little bit that terrified me and the same thing in argentina when I went to see La Dosa, the, the Balas Bravas of, of um, Boca Juniors, they were, uh, I mean, that's, it's so funny because they are so connected, the Balas Bravas are so connected to the political elite. So Maurizio Macri, the, the former president, of, or is he former president now? I mean, is he still, there's, it's still going on there, isn't it? Like, but he's, he's on his way out anyway. But Maurizio Macri was... When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply was president of Boca Juniors. And to get that position, he had to come through La Dossa, this essentially a kind of a sort of ultras group that predates them. And, you know, you heard from them how politicians would hire them to break up union uh, strikes, uh, opposition protests. Um, you know, they were they were kind of guns for hire and they controlled all the industry around the, the, the stadiums, the ticket sales. They even have, they even have their own ultras school uh, the leader, Rafa De Zeo, who I meet in like a petrol station outside the back of a petrol station, um, he set up a kind of ultras academy where ultras from all around Europe go and pay 5,000 euros to learn how to kind of set up a kind of, I mean, almost a criminal enterprise, I suppose, to like on the side of a club. And, you know, at the end, they get a CD with all the songs. I mean, a lot of the songs that you hear in stadiums around Europe are actually Argentine songs. A lot of the banners, the techniques actually come from Argentina. And uh, he called it, I think there's a quote that he said, he, he called it like the Harvard of, of the ultras world, you know. So, it, and when we were interviewing him, there's, there's at the moment, there's a power battle between two people at the top of La Dossa and we're supposed to meet his rival. And we found out minutes before we were supposed to meet his rival that the reason why he was meeting us in this specific place in Buenos Aires was not good. That was a place where they, bad things happened to people. Like I'd be robbed or, or even worse. So we had to make a decision. Do we... Do we believe what his rival was saying or do we go ahead with the interview? And in the end, we decided not to go with the interview and then we interviewed Rafa instead. But it was, you're, you're, you're sitting there thinking, well, you know, you could be assassinated here. You could be robbed, beaten up, anything. I mean, kidnapped. 
Um, so when it was, yeah, when the world of ultras touched the world of organised crime, that was, yeah, that was that was pretty frightening. I was wanted to ask a lot about the organised crime element of it. Um, do you believe that some of the funding for them comes that way? They make millions and millions and millions of dollars, not pesos, millions of dollars a month from their operations. Um, ticket scalping, parking. I mean, the figure, I think they're called trapitos, the guys who who sell the parking space, per match, per guys. There's some incredible turnover. I mean, they're making thousands of dollars. And um, so they're making a lot of money there. But the biggest, and I was told, I mean, I I interviewed one of the kind of grand dames of of La Dosa, and we gave him a pseudonym. Um, And he kind of broke down the industry for us and and, and how the business works. And... The money, I mean, it could be $6 million a month. It could be $10 million a month. And usually it depended on what the main money came from politicians or unions or opposition figures, people who needed people either to turn up to fill a march or to destroy a march. And, you know, the idea, and weirdly, I saw a very, I mean, I live in Belgrade and I saw a very similar situation in Serbia and in the Balkans as well, where, uh, groups. I mean, it was a bit more ideological in in the Balkans than it was. I mean, it was it was purely money and power in South America, but it was it, it was interesting how you know this the, the the constituency of ultras became something or badass bravas became something that, you know a tool for powerful to keep and maintain power, and you know that was that was surprising to me that two different parts of the world that you could find almost a very similar kind of business model almost. And now it's time for a quick break. You mentioned sort of a little bit about their ideologies. One of the things we haven't talked about much is, again, their sort of bid to stop the commercialization of the game. Mm. Where is that most sort of potent in the world? Or or is it most of the groups have that kind of element? And how successful are they in, in achieving that? Well, there's, it underpins pretty much every ultras group, right? I mean, they, there's part of it that's kind of harking to a bygone age that never really exists. I mean, there's always the haves and the have-nots, but they're they're kind of looking to, to a different time. And, and mostly it's not been successful in holding back that march of commercialisation. Um, there's more money in European football than ever before. Wages are higher than ever before. Ticket prices are higher than ever before. Control within the stadium is higher than ever before. But then you look at somewhere like Germany and Germany, German ultras have just been in the news because Bayern Munich and Hoffenheim played each other. And the players decided to play amongst themselves because the ultras were abusing the owner of Hoffenheim, a guy called Dietmar Hopp, who's a software billionaire. Uh, because one of the things in German football, they have a setup where they have this thing called 50 plus one, which basically means that a single owner can't own a majority share of the football club, unlike in Britain, where you could have the, uh, you know, the brother, uh, one of the members of the Bani Fati of the Abu Dhabi royal family own a football club outright and just come in and buy it. They can't do that in Germany. And what that does, that means that if you've got the majority share in the membership organisation, fans have an incredibly powerful voice. So they have managed through and they have left wing ultras in Germany and right wing ultras, but they're they're they have this connection that they're obviously against authority, against police control, against commercialization. Now, what that means is cheaper ticket prices, no Monday night football. They campaigned for to have no games on Monday. And they did that by when the Monday night football games came on, like the, I think it was the Eintracht Frankfurt ultras uh, just covered the pitch in tennis balls. Uh, and then it was te- and then it was toilet rolls. 
um, and then it was banners and then it was uh, boycotts. And eventually the German FA said, well, or German league said, okay, well, we're not going to have Monday night football. Why are they against Monday night football? Germany's a big country. This is a kind of working person sport. You can't expect to go 900 miles and back in a day and not take a day off work. So it was like, this is for TV, not for the fans. So in Germany, it's been really successful. The problem is, is that the very wealthy in Germany want to get rid of it. Dietmar Hopp has got himself an exemption. So he owns all of his football club because he's invested 300 million euros over a 10 year period. And so he's now become a kind of hate figure uh, in Germany. So it's, you know, it's really interesting the fact that it has actually been quite successful, um, the ultra activism in Germany in trying to claw back some of the power and try to make it more fan friendly and ultra friendly experience. Most of the things that they've been doing, football fans in England have been crying out for years, but no one listens to you in England because they don't have to. The owner is absolute king. The league will never... Uh, side with the, with the fans. I mean, they'll never cut ticket prices because of it. You know, uh, they'll never listen. I mean, there's there's not really any ultra groups in Britain. There's one group, Crystal Palace, I suppose, has some group that they tried to try to do it, but the the, man, the management and it's mainly owned by an American hedge fund now. And they just don't give a shit. So, what happened to our ultra fans in England? Then you touched on this earlier, yeah. but and you mentioned obviously Hillsborough and yeah. sort of the further commercialization yeah. and Premier League element. But why did that? Why did our movement sort of disintegrate? I guess well, we didn't. We didn't really have ultras. We had our own indigenous hooligan movement. And what's interesting is that is that whilst this kind of, I like to look at it in four different. There's four different kind of fan models, right? You have the English hooligan model, which is with the fashion, with the skinhead, slightly connected to punk, very dangerous, but kind of cool. Like a lot of people, you will not believe this, but Green Street Hooligans is probably the most influential film of the British film of the 21st century. Have you ever watched Green Street? No. It, well, I'm, I've fairly heard of it. I, I mean, it's you would you would not believe everywhere that I've gone. There are two things people love most about England, Depeche Mode and Green Street Hooligans. And Green Street Hooligans, is Elijah Wood plays a, a Harvard student that had been expelled, ends up in London because his parents send him there. And he ends up becoming like a West Ham football hooligan. It's, it's, it's implausible. It's a terrible film. Um, but around the world, everywhere I go, they're like, oh, you Green Street Hooligans, because I'll tell them I'm a West Ham fan and they absolutely love it. So there is this, so there's this kind of like English hooliganism, which doesn't really exist anymore. But that's like one model. You have the Italian ultras model. In South America, the the Baras Bravas with the kind of songs and, and that kind of thing. And then you have the Torcida, which is a group, which are the groups that kind of emerged from the 1940s in Brazil. And so geographically, these all kind of set up in different places. But eventually, because of globalization, they all kind of mesh into one. But what's interesting is that hooliganism, because of Hillsborough, because of the commercialization of the Premier League, that kind of that that kind of all stops. And so, why did Hillsborough? Um, obviously, yeah. horrific event, yeah. um, tragic loss of life. Uh, but why did it have that knock-on effect? So, up, so English football in the seventies and eighties. I mean, it was a disgrace in terms of what was happening in the stadiums, uh, dilapidated stadiums, unsafe, uh, unsafe policing. Um, hooliganism was 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 rampant. Um, but what happens, I mean, obviously, uh, hooliganism didn't play any role in Hillsborough. But what happens is that you have a stadium tragedy where, you know, almost 100 people die. I mean, I still remember to this day watching it on television. I mean, tragic. And that the government then covers up. And it takes years and years and years to even get something resembling justice. But um, 
what happens is that then there is a kind of reckoning afterwards. The Taylor report is released and it recommends that we have all-seater stadiums. The Premier League comes in, rebrands the game. And so it's the game is kind of gentrified and it's kind of completely changed so that it's it's almost kind of a middle-class sport now. And it's family-friendly, which is great. I mean, no one's against family-friendly football. But what it does, it kind of completely cuts off at its root whatever indigenous English football fan culture was existing before. So uh, this was very much ground zero. There's literally, literally a line in the sand. You can say what happened before then and what happened after then. And we're still trying to play catch up of trying to get back what was good. Like, for instance, we're trying to bring back or some, you know, there's a lot of people campaigning to bring back safe standing, for instance, in uh, English football stadiums, which they have in Germany. But there's such a, a resistance from the authorities to have that. The way it's policed, for instance, in England now is... I mean, it's, it's um, extremely repressive, but yeah, this, this, what happens also is that not, not to uh, forget this, but actually English hooligans have a really important influence on, on ultras as well, because they meet each other in European football, um, apart from the ban that we have after Heisel, um, but they meet at these games and uh, they, those things cross pollinate as well. So the Iliduchible, um, of Lazio, the Atalanta ultras, the Roma ultras all said that, you know, when they played English teams, they took some of the chance. They loved the chance, different type of chance, shorter, a bit funnier, a bit more off the cuff. Um, the style of the banners they were doing, the type of flags and stuff. So we didn't have ultras, but we certainly had our say or certainly had our influence on what ultra culture would, would end up looking and feeling like. And we played, we definitely played an important role. It's just that now almost what people around the world see as English football culture to be followed is something that doesn't doesn't exist in in its current in, in any form anymore. And globally, where do you think the peak for this when sorry, when do you think the peak for this was? Or is it different in every country? When do we see the sort of heights of the political of sorry of the um football ultras? Well, 80s and 90s in Italy are seen as the golden age of of ultras um you know and that's it's after then there are several deaths in in and around italian football um this famous case where a police officer in sicily was killed there was a um you know uh, several fans were shot dead at various different uh, the police were implicated in that as well but then the laws were changed and they brought in the italians brought in this rule this kind of this law called the it's kind of called the defidi like uh there's a banning order effectively you don't even need a court to have a policeman can basically declare you banned from a football match and so the control within italian football base has effectively almost killed that as well even though that the group still kind of exists uh culturally if you want to find where modern ultra culture still is thriving you have to go far outside of italy i mean germany is a really good example uh, sweden is another place where you have a thriving ultra culture um north africa i would say that the, probably the best ultra scene in the world in terms of tifo choreography flares um politics importance i don't you know but playing a role in young men and it's a, it is a very male centric scene not entirely but um the male, yeah, for them, North Africa is a fantastic. And Indonesia, I mean, the last chapter I go to is um, is in Indonesia and you have you have a thriving ultra scene, which is, I mean, it's incredibly violent. Um, but in terms of the number of young people 
uh, who are involved in it, it's still it's a it's a huge movement. And then there's a, there's another section where I go to the US to find uh, the ultra groups of MLS clubs, which are obviously all built from scratch in LA or Atlanta or wherever, but you know are very far away from the indigenous. You know these these groups that have incrementally grown over years and years. You know they've just been supplanted there, but actually the spirit of those groups are actually really interesting. And in those groups, you find a lot more women are involved. Um, when I went to LAFC to see their group, uh, it, they had a special day for uh, LGBT. <laughs> so you had a banner, uh, "We will rock you" with uh, with um, got his name now leads real quick freddie mercury so I had freddie mercury kind of pulled up on this banner and rainbow smoke coming out and i was sitting there and you had women in the capo cages leading the chants there's one called breezy who i was talking to who's about five foot tall and then she was up in the cage and she was like the biggest person i've ever seen in, in my life and she was leading these chants and you had freddie mercury up in the stands and then you had rainbow smoke everywhere and i thought can you imagine if you had this in kiev or Berlin or I mean you might find it in Berlin but like Belgrade or somewhere like that or Warsaw you just wouldn't you wouldn't see that and uh it was yeah so there are places I mean where this original culture comes from you know is being controlled because it became so powerful but it where you find it growing now it grows I think in a in a different type of way but it's you, you can still feel it you just can't really feel it in Italy as much anymore do you see them overall as extremists? I think it's a, it's a. I mean, you don't find centrist ultras. Uh, I mean, this is a this is a scene of of extremes. You know, um, you you find people who are apolitical. Um, the Swedish scene is quite apolitical, but generally speaking, when you you know, this is these are these are groups that live on the edges of society and i think that that by its very definition means it's it's in an extreme so i mean i certainly came across plenty of extremist political views but you know you've also got to remember that ultras don't they don't kind of operate they don't just come out of the ether you know they're they're a reflection of the society they come from if you go to sofia and you watch levski play and you see five thousand people giving a nazi salute you know that that isn't necessarily anything about the ultras there that's that's a problem with bulgarian society like what has allowed those men to literally spray paint swastikas all across bulgaria all across sofia um when you when i was in cairo um the the curva was a reflection of what was going on on the streets in cairo which was very heterogeneous group of people um bakers uh members of the elite women um muslim brotherhood secularists uh liberals um all wanting freedom so the ultras groups kind of main drive was about freedom it wasn't necessarily on a, on a political spectrum so it depends where it is but where you find it is it's often it, it brings whatever is the the issue that has upset them the most into the sharpest relief i think and why are women in some groups but not so much in others, do you think? It's it's purely down to, uh, you know, the fact is that when you have a scene that is kind of, I mean, violence is, has always been part of it. Um, not always, but you find that where the violence has been taken out or toned down, then women play a much greater role. The USA, for instance, where, you know, there's no hint of 
firms fighting each other. I mean, there's a few, but nothing to worry about. In Germany, you find much women are much more involved there because uh, they have the space to do so, uh, absent of violence. Certainly at certain clubs, if you go to kind of Werder Bremen, for instance, a lot of uh, Freiburg, they do, uh, they campaign against homophobia, against sexism. That's their next battle, sexism in football, because racism has been, I mean, they haven't won that battle, but it's something that's taken up by a lot of people. But sexism is the next big thing. And you meet a lot of women who are involved in that. And uh, so it's purely where they have the space in the absence of violence, I think. And then you find that, I mean, Sweden as well. I think the biggest, I think Hammerby in Sweden has the highest attendance of, of women at any men's home game. I think they're 40%. Mm-hmm. which is still, you know, less than 50, but it's still higher than anywhere else. So, so yeah, I mean, if you're, if your culture is about, you know, territory and stealing the other guy's flag, you know, you can see how women are absent from that because that is, that is, that is about supremacy and physical strength. Do you so, sort of see it as a bit of an outlet for people's sort of testosterone and, uh, you know, that sort of macho element they oh, get to ab- play at being somebody maybe uh, uh, yes to a certain extent i think I, I do agree that you do see that but then you see some of it and i mean i guess when when you know 20 men clash in a field against 20 other men it's it's less playing the game and it's actually being part of it you know that's that's real i mean that's really you're really going far to get rid of to get that testosterone out of your system so yes there are a lot of there is a lot of that, but um, there's no reason also why. I mean, when I when I talk about the more extreme elements that I've seen, I mean, I, I don't see that necessarily in a positive way. I mean, overall, I see the ultras seen as, you know, as a movement. I think there's a lot of very positive things. There's no reason why uh, women, minorities are, cannot be involved in that. They should be involved in that. Uh, but this is the way the world is at the moment. This is the way I've you know, I found things have been and they will change over time, but those societies need to change first, I think, before you'll see that change elsewhere. And if it wasn't football, would these people find another outlet for this, do you think? I think so. Um, what was the most, one, well, I've said this, well, one of the most interesting things, but one of the interesting things that you discover, especially with the leading capos, I mean, even the, the, even the language of this is Italian. I mean, capo tifosi, you know, uh, tifosi means uh, like the fans and the tifo is kind of used as a word uh, to mean like all the banners that you get. And tifosi comes from typhus. It means disease, you know, a period of mania with a period of inaction. And um, so, yes, I, I think they would find another outlet. Um, and in fact, they already are finding another outlet. One of the most interesting things is that a lot of what I find is that a lot of uh, these leaders of these groups, capos, do not even like football that much. Like, uh, when I interviewed uh, Fabrizio Piccitelli, Diabolic, the head of the Educible, he was like, I couldn't, I couldn't name you my favourite Lazio player. You know, it was, and I was like, well, what is a, you know, he put the Educible above ultras. Like, he saw it as a kind of a separate gang. It was a gang. You know, it was a group of people who shared similar values. Um, when I, I mean, there were so many people I interviewed and they were like, um, yeah, I mean, like even uh, Sergei Filimanov, who's, the head of a hooligan firm of Dinamo Kiev, who's now kind of was getting involved in kind of, he's a war veteran, but kind of involved in far right politics in Ukraine. You know, he was like, yeah, I mean, I could take it or leave it. You know, the ultras were already something that they were, were finding their outlet for. 
And so what's interesting is that you find, uh, and there's been a lot of research about this in Germany, about how the far right has moved moved its function or moved its focus away from football more towards MMA. So now you have these fighting firms. Some of them I found were part of football clubs that don't even exist anymore. They're just they would there was CSKA Kiev, I think it was, and they have a firm and they're very successful in their fights. But the club went out of business a long time ago. So it's yeah, there is there is definitely you know moving towards that you know th- th- there's a that kind of mma style violence is definitely i think the next phase of that outlet but you, you know yeah you'd i was surprised by how many people didn't actually like football what do footballers actually make of these people well i, mean, I, I realize that's a very i'm asking for hundreds of people's opinions there but but generally speaking how do the people actually playing the game feel about these obsessive Fans. Well, as footballers have got wealthier and have got closer and less close to the everyday experience of the fans and more closer to the everyday experience of the owners, I mean, they're less happy with them. I mean, you can see by the fact that there is a reason why fans, German ultras, are very angry with Dietmar Hopp. And, you know, there is a reason for it. I mean, some of the language they use, I mean, uh, they they raise the banner that called him a son of a whore and stuff like this. I mean, it's 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 not nice. So you can see why they're kind of angry about it. But the fact that the players saw more kinship with him than the fact that they're trying to protect their game tells you that the players, certainly in the modern era, are a bit more uh, closer to them. Because over the years, the kind of power that Ultras had uh, was actually quite frightening. I mean, literally in the dressing room, frightening. I mean... Uh, at Boca Juniors, the management would ask the Baris Bravas, La Dosa, to keep an eye on Maradona because he was out, probably taking cocaine in massive quantities, and they wanted to rein him in because they could be playing that weekend. So he would go out there and they would threaten him, like, go home, you, that's your last drink, or we'll beat you up. Um, players would have to pay tribute to their Baris Bravas, to the, to the Bada to be able to keep playing, to keep having songs sung against them, uh, for them, or they would get sung against. Um, Diabolic, Fabrizio Pichelli, there's a brilliant uh, BBC documentary from 2001, I think it was called Hooligans, and it's one episode where they actually follow uh, uh, Diabolic before the Rome derby, and they show footage of how these guys, like, they just turn up at the training ground because they're unhappy about the results, and they start shouting. Like, in England, they'd, get the riot police would turn up there the captain of the team turns up takes diabolic inside they have a conversation they agree with everything he says and then he leaves and they have to basically he he was in effect you know one of the people who was in control of the club it was unbelievable and there was Lillian Taram who's a famous French international who won the won the world cup with France in 1998 um refused to sign for Lazio uh, because of the of the racism and there's a, there's a story that he tells in that documentary where um, one day Diabolic turns up at, at Palmer and just turns up and manages to get an audience with him. Somehow gets through all the security. He's so powerful that he can literally one on one say, "Why don't you why don't you sign for Lazio?" And he's like, "Who are these people? Why are you here?" So, so yeah, the players I think have a you know uh, I mean I think they're very in in this era it's, it's much easier to separate the two, but you can I think their the fear is overwhelming i think for a lot of them so i think they're quite glad that that they're um that they've been separated a bit thank you very much you're welcome